The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the latest on this unsettled market. How much selling is left? Is a Santa Claus rally still in the cards? We're looking out for your money, as always, in the weeks and months ahead, debating the best moves you can make with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jason Snipe, Brent Talkington, Shannon Sakosha, and Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. It's good to see everybody today. Let's check stocks. Everything now on pace to end the week lower. It's the worst week for the NASDAQ and the S&P since February. I mean, what a ride already on this day. The Dow was down by more than 500, cut those losses in half. Now it's approaching a 500-point decline yet again. That would, right now, one in three, uh, one and a third percent uh, for the Dow S&P is still negative by nearly 1%. The Nasdaq had briefly gone positive. That's rolling back over again. Russell is hanging in there. And there's the 10-year note yield at 138. Pete Najarian, I begin with you. I mean, what a week. The Fed spoke in. Stocks were up. Then they're down. Now they're all around. What happens now? I got a VIX <laughs> at 21. How do you see things? Yep. Well, I think, you know, uh, I think the interesting thing about the VIX is a lot of people expect it to be much higher, right, Scott? I mean, the reality is you're down 500 points and everybody says, hey, why is the VIX not spiking? Here's the, the story behind the VIX. A VIX at 16 gives you a 1% move on the S&P. That is the measure. It's not the Dow. It's the S&P. So that's one of the factors that comes into this thing. We haven't even moved 1% yet in the S&P. So when you look at that, part of it is the intraday movement that we are getting, however. You look at the VXN, which is the NASDAQ VIX, that had a big spike up towards 28. That immediately pulled back, especially when you were talking about it actually went into positive territory for the NASDAQ. So that's another factor. I'll tell you what's really interesting is on top of that, Scott, is when you look at volumes, we got 70 million contracts that are going to be expiring in the options world. So that's something I think to keep track of as we get into this deeper into this Friday. But on top of that, on Monday and Tuesday, we traded about 38 million one day, 35 and a half million going into the Fed. On Fed Day, bang, we just jumped right back up. We're trading and the volumes came back. We saw 43 million trading on Thursday. We saw, or Wednesday rather, 44 and a half million yesterday. So we're seeing those volumes come back. And I think that the reality is people have to keep track of the volatility index because it's based upon these measurements. These are factual type measurements. And then you have to bring into it what the intraday actually feeds into it as well. So right now, I think when you look at the volatility index, even if we get back up where we were at the higher end, which we may, towards 23, that probably makes sense. To be at 30 or something like that right now does not. So we'll have to keep a very close eye on what's going on with the S&P itself and, of mm -hmm. course, the NASDAQ. And the NASDAQ has been performing far better, obviously, today than we've been seeing out of the Dow itself because the financials getting hammered mm -hmm. with that 10-year coming down as fast as it has. All right, we'll watch it. There's the VIX right there. It's a spike of 7 and a third percent. So, Shannon, uh, we use the word unsettled at the top to describe the market. I feel like that's the right word to, you know, for how it feels. It just feels very unsettled. So what happens 
now, between now and the end of the year. I posed the question at the top, you know, how much selling feels like needs to still happen. Can a Santa Claus rally still occur? Because after you give me that answer, I'm going to go through a couple of recent notes and commentary that I just got that not ready to throw in the towel just yet. Well, I'm not going to say that it can't happen. Um, And I think that unsettled is the right term. I think we went from perhaps a bit uncertain to this unsettled period. And I think a big part of that is because we are looking at what are investors positioning for? Are they positioning for the last couple of weeks of the year? I would say that we probably have, um, and I'm happy you went to Pete first to talk a little bit about volumes. I think we have one or two more days of big volume, and then I think it's going to start to subside. And so are investors looking to position into the end of the year? Are they starting to look forward to the first quarter of next year and thinking about January of 2016, for instance, when we came out of the gate and had a pretty tough couple of weeks? I believe that what we're seeing today is that we're seeing people that perhaps were tentatively repositioning ahead of the Fed decision, got the Fed decision that they were anticipating, and are not necessarily scared about the market next year, but perhaps creating a broader cyclical strategy than they had previously, perhaps adding some additional cyclical risk along the margin, perhaps taking some gains, some additional gains in some of their growth stocks ahead of next year. Um, I think this... Um, this skittishness will will persist into 2022. I think we're going to see it in January as well. But I do think that it offers opportunity for repositioning. And so I'm not necessarily going to say that we don't see a Santa Claus rally. But even if we do, I think that some of this unsettled feeling follows us into 2022. Mm. And I think it's going to be pretty active those first few weeks. All right, we'll see. Uh, everybody hang tight for just two seconds. Let me get to Kayla Tausche in Washington with some important breaking news for us. Kayla? Hey, Scott, uh, we have a new annual report from a group of financial regulators monitoring financial stability and led by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. They're releasing their first annual report of the Biden administration. And while they're focused on threats posed by climate change, non-bank financial institutions and liquidity in the Treasury market, the lengthy report also goes into detail on some market dynamics at play. And I wanted to bring you some of those. They note valuation pressures could cause what they're calling a major repricing of risk. They note high leverage in airline hospitals hospitality, leisure, and restaurant sectors. They warn of potential distress and default in commercial real estate and warn of a possible hard landing in China, but say the U.S. risk to that would be, quote, manageable. The report briefly mentioned China Evergrande, but noted broadly that a slowdown in China's real estate market could also trigger spillover effects in global commodity markets where China accounts for almost half or more than half of steel, copper, and iron ore consumption. The report also highlights highlights a few areas where new policy could be useful, like more central clearing of treasuries, better disclosure by family offices to avoid avoid a future Archegos situation, new rules for stable coins if Congress doesn't write its own, and better policy for social media-based trading, noting that volatility early this year in GameStop and other meme names fell outside existing policy tools. And while climate change continues to be the top priority for this group, uh, Scott, senior Treasury officials tell me that there's not a discussion of stress testing for climate just yet. A lot to chew on. I'll send it back to you. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, interesting stuff, Kalo. I appreciate that breaking news for us. That's Kayla Tausche in Washington. And we're going to delve into at least one part of that. And that is the repricing of risk um, in just a minute, especially on valuations and some of those high flying stocks. I do want to highlight a note that dropped within the last hour uh, from somebody we follow very closely. That's Marco Kalanovic, uh, J.P. Morgan. Jason Snipe, I'm going to play this to you. Um, he's not ready to throw in the towel. 
you know, he says a short squeeze rally into year end looks likely. Now, this is taking everything into consideration. Fed policy, this policy change, a more hawkish Fed, if you want to characterize it as that. Omicron, the variant that's drawing a lot of concern globally. He says, and I quote, the narrative for the sell-off is related to Omicron and the Fed, while actual selling comes largely from de-risking and shorting from equity and macro hedge funds. Can you guys throw that back up there just so folks can follow along, please? For short-selling campaigns to succeed, there has to be positioning, liquidity, and often system- systematic amplifiers of the sell-off. We believe these conditions are not met. And hence, this market episode may end up in a short squeeze and cyclical rally into year end and January. Omicron's mortality rate is very low. This is consistent with Omicron being a bullish rather than bearish market development. And I got a positive thing from Ed Yardeni as well. He's not ready to give up on the Santa Claus rally either. Are you, Jason Snipe? Yeah, so obviously it's been an interesting tape this week. I mean, a lot of volatility, a lot of volume. I mean, for me, I think what I do is just I'm I'm zooming out and saying, okay, we are positioning. And then I think Shannon made a great point from a positioning standpoint. We're at the end of the year now. We're looking into 2022. Where do folks want to be? Obviously, the Fed has made their statement. They're going to increase uh, the tapering timeline, which which they have obviously talked about all year you know, especially over the last couple of weeks, and then they're going to reassess from a tightening perspective. So I think when we when we think about valuation, high valuation names, uh, long duration assets, you know, cash flows way out in the future, typically those are the names that get hurt, you know, in a rising rate environment. So those are names that obviously we need to look at. And I haven't abandoned um, all of them. There, there's quite a few that I still do hold that I see secular opportunities with. But I think that is something that we need to pay very close attention to going into 2022. But I do think there's potential opportunity in the markets now that the inflation numbers are behind us and we know where the Fed stands. So, Bryn, um, just to play off this news again that Kayla was bringing us, and we're showing you at the bottom of the screen this Treasury-led group and what they've said about elevated valuations and the risk that comes with that. I'm wondering how you're thinking of that at the current time. As we always mention, uh, for, you know, for better or worse, you do hold the ARC funds, right? The innovation fund. Um, that's the epicenter of the selling. That's the epicenter of the concern about risk and elevated valuation. So how are you thinking about that today relative to the selling that we've already seen and what you think may come on the other side? Well, just hearing so a couple of things on, on, on Kayla's reporting. It's, I haven't read the report, but from what she was saying, it seems that they were talking more about the broad economy and those risks when they're talking about leveraging airlines and restaurants and, and hotels and and Well, they're talking about elevated valuations, though. They are, for, yeah. Forgive me for interrupting you. They are talking about elevated yeah. valuations. And I, I can't help but think that at least some of that has to do with the kinds of stocks that I'm asking you about and the risks of the deflation of, of many of those names, which has already happened and continues to occur in many cases. Yeah, it's interesting because let, let's talk about that. You know, in Marco's note as well, you know, he talks about how the CTAs are out, outright short. A lot of those will say, you know, ARC names. He didn't name ARC names in general, but he's talking about small cap tech, outright short those names. And that when, the, when they cover, okay, when someone's heavily short and they cover, you get a huge rally. And so, you know, it's, I think it's interesting to say, I don't know who said it this week, but I thought it was great, is that, you know, the soldiers are not following the generals. And so what that means, if you look at the broad indices, just look at the Russell 3000 
is only a few percentage points off its all-time high. But the average stock is down 28% in the Russell 3000. And there's over 20% of the stock, there's like 550 stocks in the Russell 3000 that are down over 50%. And so I think that hits right to, you've seen this massive de-risking. You've already seen, I mean, ARK, I think, hit a high, ARKK, of 140, maybe 145. And as of this morning, it's in the low 90s. But what's interesting, if you, if you pull up ARKK today, they're having a massive rally. Some of the genomics names inside there, like Invitea, Beam, et cetera, are up over 10%. So I do think if you get a short covering, it's not going to be a short covering in the S&P 500 because no one's short the S&P 500. It's at an all-time high. I think if you get a rally, you're going to get a rally in more of these names that are down 50%, 60%. So and so, as I, as I said before, I'm more prone over the next few months to be adding to that because I think that, once again, GDP is going lower. And you see that in the bond market right now. A flat yield curve tells you the bond market thinks that growth is slowing. The conundrum is the Fed is trying to fight now inflation. And so I think it's going to be a real tightrope for them. But if we do have growth actually slowing, that actually plays well into those higher multiple names that are off, like, once again, as I said, 50 percent. Uh, you're not kidding. I mean, I'll, I'll go through some of them because it plays to the next part of the narrative that I want to develop. And, you know, a DocuSign, for example, is down 52 percent from its high. Cloudflare is 41 percent. I mean, these stocks have crashed. Let's just call it what it is. Coupa is down 60 and a half percent from its 52-week high. Zoom is 59. CrowdStrike, which is loved by Josh Brown and some others on this not maybe on the panel today, but others in our investment committee, is down 34. And there are many other stocks that fall into that boat. Twilio is down 44%. This notion of you see these big declines, you say, well, maybe it's time to do some nibbling on the names that I like best. And that brings me to the comments that Brad Gerstner of Altimeter made to me yesterday in our conversation about this very space, how much more time it has to go down, and what you should do as an investor. Here's what he said. If you just looked at growth multiples, they were about 30 to 40% higher than the five-year trailing average. They were about 40% higher than where we were in January of 2020, which I thought was a pretty much a pre-COVID level that we would likely retrace back to. Over the course of the last couple of months, we've gotten there even faster than I expected. We used that opportunity, some of those pullbacks, to buy some of our favorite names as we head into 2022. All right, that's Brad Gerstner yesterday. Bryn, I just toss it back to you. So they added to Snowflake, you know, within the last, you know, near term here. Um, they added to Roblox. I think you own Roblox. So, yep. you know, to the point that you're making, are you doing the same thing that Gerstner's doing? No, no, we're not. I mean, I would add, I own Roblox. I own it in the 70s. And so um, what I am doing on a name like Roblox is I've been selling calls. And so when Roblox was in the 120s just a few weeks ago, I sold calls against that position because there was a ton of premium. And so I think that's a strategy that you know, investors can take advantage of in this volatility is to sell calls. So my, my position in Roblox, I'm right-sized, but I want to take advantage. I do think, though, these names have had so much damage. You know, and history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes. And if you go back to 2000 to 2002, the NASDAQ went down roughly 80%. Now, don't forget, the S&P was down 49. And so to me, when I'm, when I'm, when, as I said earlier, the soldiers aren't following the generals. You know, so, so did those stocks stay down and the market come back 
market follow the soldiers or do the, gen the soldiers start following the generals? And so I'm not going to add to an arc until I get a few months later. I want to see what happens with inflation. I want to see what happens in the economy. Because I do think next year presents itself with a host of risks that we just haven't had as the Fed has done a change in monetary policy. And so you need to act accordingly. Right. I'm, not, I'm not in a hurry to add to the position. I'll wait and then take a position when I think I feel like there's a, a better visibility from my opinion on how these stocks are going to be priced by the market. You know, there, there's also the, the notion, I, I want to just throw it out there, Peloton, for example, I asked Gerstner whether he still owned it yesterday, and he surprised me by saying that he didn't and that he sold it. I look at a Peloton, yes, it's getting a nice pop today, but it's at $41. The 52-week high is 171 The reality is that there are some stocks in these baskets that may never recover. They may. They may not. We just don't know. I'm not putting a Twilio, for example, 44% off its 52-week high in that basket, and I'm not putting a Salesforce at 20.5% off its 52-week high in bear market territory in that basket either. But it's an impetus for me to ask you, Jason Snipe, about those names, because you own both. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. Obviously, they're, they're not all these names, high beta names, expensive stocks are not all created equal. You know, Twilio, for example, I mean, they're down 22 percent year to date. But I, I love the communication platform. I think there's some secular tailwinds there. It's an expensive stock. It's trading at 19 times sales. So um, but I agree with Bryn. I'm not going to add to the to this name and some of these names here. Um, but but I do think for me, they're absolute holes. And, and on this on the side of CRM, you know, another great software name, you know, not quite as expensive as Twilio, you know, but they, from, from a software perspective and, and where they are, you know, again, you know, it's been a, it was a strong report, you know, six consecutive quarter, 20% plus revenue growth. Um, there's, there's a lot of opportunity in their name from the long term. So it's a hold for me here. I'm kind of, kind of want to how things progress and how the early part of next year uh, rolls out to kind of see what we do with a lot of these names. I mean, the other risk beyond Omicron is a more aggressive Fed than some are anticipating and whatever the market continues to price in and what it thinks is going to happen in the near term. Let's bring in our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, who, Steve, you know, you were talking earlier of this notion that the market is now cautiously, and you use that word, so I'm, I'm going to use it too, um, pricing in a March rate hike, which is, you know, earlier than people are expecting. Yeah, and I was sort of surprised that that did not take more hold on Wednesday, Scott. When I heard what Powell said when I read the statement, I thought for sure March was, I don't know, a 50% probability, but it kind of stayed down in that 30 and 40% probability. Take a look at the probabilities now, Scott. We're now, I should say cautiously, we're not quite at 50%, which is the number that says, hey, more than half want it. But look at that March number, 47%. Earlier this week, before the meeting, it had been down near 30, uh, and now you could see May priced in pretty well for the first quarter point hike, June for sure. And then you start to get into this earlier possibility. This is another new development, Scott, the idea of a second hike in July, third hike still not decently priced into to December. These things move around a lot. They're very volatile. It is interesting you have this kind of movement on a day when the the two-year and other yields are down. Usually, uh, these things move sympathetically with them, but they, the, the, the probabilities seem to have a kind of mind of their own today, Scott. And what's happening is, uh, you know, the idea that the Fed could end the QE purchases in March and start hiking right away 
is certainly a risk. I don't know for sure if it's going to happen. As we talked to John Williams, he said, depends on the data, but it's out there as a potential risk for March to be the first rate hike. Yeah, uh, and it's good that you use the word risk. I mean, because that's that's sort of what it's going to be, right? The market is not going to take that kindly. It's a downside risk for stocks. I, I want you to stay with me. I want to know what a, a, a wealth manager thinks about what you're talking about, what the panel has talked about already. Let's bring in Chris Toomey of Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. He joins us once again. Uh, Toomey, welcome back. It's good to see you today. Thanks for having me. What, Happy what's, holidays. What's, you, you as well, thank you. What's more of a risk right now, do, do you feel? Is it Omicron or is it a more aggressive Fed, the likes of which could be even more aggressive than some are thinking based on what Mr. Leisman just showed us with his uh, graph? No, I, I don't think it has to be one or the other. I think it could be both. Um, I think uh, to Pete's earlier point, you know, the channel checks that we've seen, we're seeing systematic trading, uh, trading on the downside and repositioning from both systematic and discretionary managers. So you've got that pressure plus tax loss selling plus uh, Omicron. And then I think the probably bigger piece of this, which I think is going to be the longer term piece, is what Steve was talking about just with regards to focusing in on the uh, issues around um, the Fed, a 50% chance of having uh, three rate hikes now in next year is going to have a dramatic impact with regards to valuation and pricing. So, you know, I think that's something that the market's digesting. And to to build off of one of Bryn's points, um, you know, I think Everyone's looking at the market right now for year end and the the returns look relatively good. But if you dig deeper down, the average stock in the S&P 500 is down about 13 percent from the high. The average stock, almost uh, 50 percent of the Nasdaq's down about 20 percent from the highs. She mentioned the Russell. I think it's down about 35 percent. So that's not even taking into account this year, this, this week's volatile period. And and I think that speaks specifically to the market dynamics. We talked about this the last time I were here. And it's just the top heaviness of the S&P 500. Four stocks account for about a third of the return this year. Over the last six months, it's been about 70%. And so I think the concern is, is the market's looking forward and they're looking at valuations and they're saying, we got, it, we got stretched. And they're forward thinking and they responded to Powell's pivot and his language uh, you know, for the last three or six months. And they've been taking these high valuation stocks down. Now, the flip side to that is what Steve was alluding to with regards to what's going on in the Treasury market. You know, if you look at mega cap tech, which is driving uh, the majority of the returns of these indexes, you know, you look at the earnings uh, risk premium right now, it's at about three and a half percent. Historically, it's been around three percent. And if you go back even farther, it's gone. It's about two hundred two percent. So you could make the argument looking at big tech versus treasuries that they still look relatively cheap. Steve, you know, I guess you, you can respond to that. But but I also am curious as to how you think Powell and company are thinking about the valuations of the market and, you know, whether they're probably, I would guess, a, a little happy, if you want to use that word, that it's deflating a little bit in an area of perceived excess and froth. Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. And one other thing, which is I want to, you know, applaud it to whoever wrote that little deco along the bottom there, Fed versus Omicron. I don't know if that was you, Scott, or Prashant, or one of the team back there. It was the team. But that's exactly what the debate is, right? It was the team. 
Not it was me. the team, Scott, and 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 that's what that's the key right there is that um, Omicron no I think team, is pressing Steve. down on yields. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Omicron is pressing down on yields and maybe pressing down on the market, while the Fed, because of inflation, needs to move the other way. Um, I think it's it's a risk out there that the Fed has to move and move more quickly uh, and, and do more next year. I think that's a big part of what's what's out there. And and when it comes to valuations. Remember here, what the Fed wants to happen, I don't think they want to see anything crater at all. They don't want to see uh, stocks crater. They don't want to see a taper tantrum. And they've had some success in avoiding that. But the expressed intent of Fed policy, especially Fed jawboning policy, is to tighten financial conditions. And if you guys wouldn't mind bringing up that chart that I made earlier, which is what's happened to yield since the Fed meeting, yields have gone down. Down. Financial conditions have gotten looser. If you look across the spectrum, you know, six basis points on the two, 10 on the five year. Now, admittedly, there's been some movement since the Fed pivot 1130 uh, when, when, when Powell talked about it, a testimony there. But they haven't moved all that much. You haven't had a lot of tightening there. So that's another risk for the market. If the market doesn't do the Fed's bidding, the Fed may have to do more, which is the same thing as saying, uh, the beatings will continue to morale improve. Scott. Well, I mean, to me, you've got so to Steve's point, you've got rates, you know, moving lower. You still have liquidity aplenty, despite that the fact that everybody's losing their mind over what the Fed is going to do next. And then you have still, you know, more positive than negative sentiment and commentary around Omicron, right? So are, are those three things? The principal reasons why you continue to suggest, as I believe you do, to buy the dip. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the the positives uh, are 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 still there, right? We're expecting uh, U.S. GDP to grow at four point seven percent, which is above trend. It's about fifty basis points above consensus. Earnings will continue to be strong. The consumer's in great shape. We're expecting continuations with regards to uh, capex and earnings to be very strong. I, our big concern is valuation. And I think the other concern is, is, is almost more technical. You look at comps for Q1, Q2, and I think you guys have been talking about this a little bit earlier this week. They're gonna be tough. You know, We're in a situation where growth is coming down. It's still above trend, but we're seeing a situation where you know, comps in Q1 are gonna be very tough. If you remember last year, we had the Trump stimulus followed by the Biden stimulus. We don't have that. And we also had some very positive news around the vaccines. And right now we're seeing uh, issues around Omicron. That being said, you know, I think from a comparison standpoint, if you look at equities versus treasuries, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Fed raising rates from zero to one percent. Mm -hmm. You know, how much of that is going to be affecting the discounting? for blue chip companies. And so there's plenty of liquidity and we think there's gonna be plenty of opportunity with regards to buying the dip. And so I think you need to be patient. You need to be thoughtful. I think uh, Brad's uh, recommendation with regards to, you know, some of these stocks that were taken out to the woodshed, I don't think you're necessarily gonna be buying them in the blanket fashion that you might've done in 2020. So but I think there are some really good companies that are trading at a discount that if you have a longer term investment horizon and you're willing to deal with some of this volatility, I think it's great. I think I think Bryn's point also about taking advantage of this ex, this expected volatility next year makes sense with regards to writing covered calls. I mean, 
it's it's one thing to look at the VIX, but also looking at the underlying volatility on names should be very profitable for people next year. All right. Good stuff. I appreciate your perspective and your point of view. Happy holidays to you and your family. We'll see you on the other side. That's Chris Toomey. Take care. Joining us today. All right. Steve Leisman, our thanks to you as well. Uh, always appreciate that. Gang, sit tight. We'll be right back. Rivian, it's tanking on the back of its first earnings as a public company. If you own the stock, should you get out now? Should you buy more? What does Pete Najarian think about that? We're going to ask him about it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The CDC giving new COVID guidance that should keep more kids in class. Unvaccinated students who are exposed to COVID will be allowed to stay in school if they continue to test negative. And on the news tonight, improved COVID testing in schools and the NFL gets criticized for how it's dealing with rising infections. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And for the second day in a row, New Jersey reporting new COVID cases at levels not seen in 11 months. Daily cases are up 40 percent over the last week. Nearly one in eight COVID tests is coming back positive. Hospitalizations are also at an eight-month high after rising 14 percent in a week. Trump advisor Roger Stone refusing to answer questions from the congressional panel investigating the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. Stone appeared before the committee in response to a congressional subpoena but invoked his constitutional protection against self-incrimination. And in the Philippines, at least 12 people have died after a major typhoon slammed into the country. More than 300,000 people have been displaced. President Duterte says that disaster funds have already been depleted by the COVID pandemic. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. I appreciate that, Rahel. Thank you. That's Rahel Solomon. have some news for you now. The CNBC Investing Club with Jim Cramer out with a new letter. They're buying more Boeing. That's interesting. 50 shares at roughly $193.16. It increases the weighting in his portfolio from 2.34% to about 2.56. He says they see a, quote, dislocation in value at these levels. You know, Pete, and I don't think you own Boeing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it just makes me think about that, set, that statement. We see a dislocation in value at these levels. And what stocks you may see in that mm-hmm. same vein? Well, you know, when you guys were talking earlier about some of those names that absolutely get hammered to the downside, those high multiple names, 
I think a couple of them do stand out for me, Scott, because there are names that absolutely the reason they went to where they went was because of the start of the pandemic. And then over time, you know, they, they have not been able to keep up and they probably can't get anywhere close to that same growth rate when they when we come out of this pandemic eventually and we are obviously been progressing for the last year or so into this two-year deep deal so you know i think there are names like a docusign for instance like a zoom where yeah i understand that that was partially the reason why they spiked the way that they did but i think some of these stocks are actually here to stay i think zoom is one of those i think docusign is one of those so i think you have to be very specific on how you analyze which stocks actually have a chance and i look at something like a peloton which i've been very critical of and i you know i don't want to be so you know negative on it but I do think that was all driven by everybody being at home. And you and I talked about this multiple times early, especially when we got into the pandemic. We talked about Peloton and we talked about the idea that, hey, look, people want to be social. So there is something to that side of it. So people go back to gyms. The Pelotons do become those very expensive clothes hangers. And by the way, when you look at Peloton, one of the other issues on top of everything else is their cash burn. So their cash burn is there, high multiple. You've got all these different variables. I think there are names that I think will stay under pressure, but I do think there are multiple names out there that you could dip your toe into at least at, at this time, like a Zoom and like a DocuSign, and there's probably others out there. You doing but those that? are some of the names that are on my list you, that I'm looking at. Are you, so you're just um, looking I've, at them. You're not doing any w- options play in there, or, or, or are you? I have been in those, but I have not been in there other than with options. And I think Zoom has probably been the one that I've been attracted to most, and I use it very frequently as well. But I've been attracted to most because I do think that's going to stick. And I think that's going to stick over time, especially when you talk to CEOs and you talk about all the flights across the country and everything else. They'll still be doing that someday, but they won't probably be doing it at the rate that they did in the past. So because of that, I think this is one of those names that actually could be very beneficial going forward. We're going to talk about another name that you're associated with right now. That's Rivian. Shares are plunging after the EV maker said it expects to fall a few hundred vehicles short of its 2021 production target. CNBC auto reporter Phil LeBeau joins the committee. Uh, This is ugly today, Phil. It is ugly and not a surprise, Scott. And yet, if you look at the analyst notes, if you listen to the call last night, This was not one of those, oh, my goodness, where did this come from? Never saw this coming. Uh, Look, this is a company that is starting from scratch, ramping up production, dealing with a tight supply chain. It's supply chain. It's building at the same time. So I I think this is a sell-off here, uh, if you want to call it a sell-off, down 12%. That is not a huge surprise. And yet, I don't think it changes the outlook in terms of long-term what people think the potential is for Rivian. You know, Pete, while we still have Phil, I I note that you sold your Rivian stock. Mm -hmm. Now, we had your brother on yesterday who was out of his calls. And remember, I had said Mm -hmm. he bought those in the open market. You had an allocation on the IPO. Why now sell the stock? Sure. I was very fortunate because I did get an allocation from the IPO. So when you go back and that price is at 78 bucks, that that feels pretty good. That gave me room to be able to trade this stock. I've always been in the idea that this is a trade. This is not an investment. You look at the multiples there, you know, there's nothing to look at there. 
And Phil will tell you a lot of the positives, and there are obviously some negatives as well. They're probably going to have to raise cash again as they're trying to build out some of these facilities. And that's fine. That's something that we've seen in the past. We've seen Tesla and others do that. But what bothered me most for me, from my perspective, and this, this goes back to what Chris was talking about and what Bryn was talking about, about implied volatility, Scott. And I was telling you early on, I said, as soon as they bring on options, I'm going to be selling at the money calls against this position. It's exactly what I'd been doing. And I've been continuing to do that. Here's the one problem. We started off with implied volatilities. In other words, how much premium is in those options? It was close to 200 or as high as 250. Right now, very similar to Tesla, the implied volatility, believe it or not, has been coming down despite the fact that the stock has been coming down. So as the stock has gone from 170 all the way to call it mid-90s, you look at that implied volatility, it's now trading very close to 100. So I'm not getting what I like for the risk-reward. Before that, I was getting double what people would be getting now. So I just made the determination. I like what I did. I like the position. I liked all the premium I was able to take out of this stock. Yeah. But I'm not getting the same types of premium that I was before. They feel, you know, Jonas over at Morgan Stanley says of this one, it's still the one, uh, but there's more ramp risk, mm-hmm. right? Supply's an issue. Uh, but sure. what about what, what Pete just said about the balance sheet needing more cash? Do you know enough about that situation that, that you can opine on that? I don't think they, well, I, I know enough to know they don't need it immediately. And they've, you know, look, they committed $5 billion to build a second plant uh, east of Atlanta for production. It won't be open until 2024. Do I think that by 2024, there will be likely another capital raise of some sort, probably because they're going to have to increase their production again. I mean, they have big plans for the future. I think the most interesting story here, Scott, and what Rivian is really uh, an early indicator that people should keep in mind, you have an industry where you have so many automakers, whether startups like Rivian or established automakers, who have said, we are building X number of electric vehicles over the next five years or seven years or however long. There's not the battery capacity there. And you know what? I'm not sure there's going to be that battery capacity for some time. That is the big scramble that's going on right now. And that's going to ultimately make people say, okay, let's dial back our expectations not just for Rivian, but for other companies in terms of how quickly they'll be able to ramp up production of EVs. I got you. Phil, the best. Rolls with everything. Thank you. We'll see you soon. That's Phil LeBeau (laughs) joining us from Chicago. He just handles everything. All right. Up next, we have more buys and sells from the committee. I'll tell you what they are after this break. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals 
to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All right, Shan, we got some business to take care of. We've got some moves you have. Uh, Johnson & Johnson, you sold it. Is that because of the vaccine news? Um, technically, no. Uh, we sold it last Thursday. Oh, okay. um, actually, the reason we, <laughs> but the reason we sold J and J was the upcoming transition um, into two companies, and we feel like until that deter- that occurs, we're going to see some overhang on the stock, and we're really not. Go- we're going to wait and see on that. So we uh, we moved out of the position. Okay, but you did buy Agilent Tech. Can you tell us why, please? We did. We did. So Agilent provides uh, logis- um supplies and devices to labs. And we think that one of the ways to play um, growth over the next couple of years will be in the biopharma space. So if you think about biopharma R&D, we already are expecting to see significant growth in those markets. 60% of the company's revenue is recurring. So it offers you an opportunity to be leveraged to this rather binary, but a fast-growing part of the healthcare sector, but in a way that's a bit more conservative. Hey, Pete, real quick before I go to break, did I see that you bought some Microsoft calls for fresh ones? You did, yes. Yeah, and that was just based upon some of the unusual that we were seeing there, Scott. I mean, I know the stock's been all over the place, up and down, and it's been moving. But, yeah, I like what we saw when we, when we saw some of that unusual option activity in there. And I, I still think that this is one of those names. It's going to be up or down 3 or 4%, it seems like, on a daily basis right now, at least this week. But I think generally the, the direction is higher. All right. We have more trades ahead. Pete has unusual activity. We'll do that after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. Dow is down 421. All right, Pete, unusual. What do you got for us today? Well, the first one I'm going to start off with is Energy, Energy ETF XLE. Now, this one's pretty good size, Scott. They bought 10,000 of December 31st, last week, obviously, of December calls. They bought the 54.5 calls. Stock was trading, or the ETF was trading 54.5 at the time. The reason I don't have that in my disclosure is normally I would be a buyer. I actually wanted to go to the next derivative of that, which is the XOM. XOM is actually 23% of the XLE. I'd rather have an individual name rather than an ETF. But nonetheless, they're looking for energy to spike to the upside. And it's been plateauing for a little while. Ever since you go back to like late October, it's been somewhere within this range. The next one I've got for you is a name that we don't talk about very often, Copang. Now, this is a South Korean e-commerce play. Stock was trading right around $28.5. And we had a buyer of next Friday's expiring. They bought 12000 of next Friday's Friday's expiring 29 calls. They paid about 60 cents for these calls. So seeing that, that got me inspired. I hadn't seen this stock in a long period of time. It's near the low end of the, of the chain of where it is. So I figured, you know what, maybe this thing does have a little bit of a shot. I like the, t- the commitment of the size of this trade. So I'm in that one as well. All right. Good stuff, Pete. Thank you very much. All right. Up next, the committee is going to answer your questions and ask halftime. That is back and we're back in two minutes. All right, now for Ask Halftime. Rajuda in Denver writes, which growth stock or ETF should I buy in my 11-year-old daughter's custodial brokerage account? She loves to watch your show and trade, and we love that. Jason, you first. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, for me, 
you know, I, I really like Microsoft here as a long-term hold, you know, as we continue to move through this technological revolution, you know, where they sit in cloud, AI, and software, really like Microsoft as a growth name here into the long-term um, to allocate towards. Okay, uh, what about you, Bryn? Yeah, well, first, thanks for watching the show. It's always great to have young investors. So I'm going to give you three, because you need to learn about portfolio construction and diversification. So I would buy QUAL, which is a high-quality U.S., large-cap, diversified portfolio. I would also buy BITW, which is um, Bitwise's top 10 largest crypto ETF. And then I would finally buy ARKK as a long-term investor. It's a great way to get really good companies, but it's really volatile. So balance that out with QUAL. All right, there you go, Brent. I knew you were going to do that. Bring it all full circle. <laughs> all right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. All right, let's talk about Estee Lauder. There it is. It's down about 4.5% today. We're talking about it, however, because it was named a top 2022 pick at J.P. Morgan. The other reason we bring it up is because Shannon... You own it. $379 is the price target. It does come a day after Jim Cramer's charitable trust exited the entire position. What do you think about that? Well, I don't. I love Jim, but I disagree with the move. Uh, I think there is going to be an overhang on this stock over the next couple of months. A third of their sales are in emerging markets, and they, they really do benefit from being um, in store. So foot traffic, whether through duty free or in a department store. Um, but if you think about Prestige Beauty, they are number one or number two in all of the markets where they participate. And so I think from a competitive perspective, we're going to continue to see Prestige Beauty spend um, increase over the next 10 years. And they're going to be the primary beneficiary from that. All right. Uh, I also note today that Procter & Gamble, another stock that Shannon owns, is at a 52 week high. Jason Snipe gets this one because he owns it, too. Yeah. So obviously P&G has benefited from market sentiment. I mean, it's up a little over 11% over the last month, 3% uh, this week. You know, margin pressures, gross margins are down 370 basis points year over year. So I think they will work through supply chain. But obviously, like the move, you know, it's been a long-term hold for us in our dividend portfolio. All right. Pete, Coca-Cola, I think I saw as a 52-week high as well. Yeah, this has been a long time hold for me, Scott, and I'm not somebody who has just Coke and, and not Pepsi. I own both in terms of stocks. But I'll tell you what, the conservative nature of what this company does, plus the fact that over the time, all the acquisitions they've made away from the carbonated beverages, I think all of that fits in. And quite honestly, people are looking for something conservative. 22 PE, they do have growth. I think this is a great stock that's going to continue to go higher. All right. Um, let's do final trades, if we could. Shan, what do you got? MLM, so uh, infrastructure trade, aggregates, as well as uh, cement construction in Texas, um, they are certainly going to benefit from infrastructure, which we've already seen in the stock, but there's still some opportunity here to add. All right, good stuff. Bryn? Yeah, LIT, the Global X Lithium and Battery ETF. You don't need to buy companies that aren't really producing cars. You could, to, to take advantage of the EV, you can actually buy the components inside of LIT. Jason Snipe. Palo Alto, a lot of growth in the cybersecurity space. You know, they've done a lot of spending this year that I think is behind them that's preparing them for future growth. I like this name. Stay long. All right. Good stuff. Thank you. Pete Nigerian. 
I'm going to go with SoFi. Great game last night played out of that stadium, and oh, I think yeah. this is a stock that's going higher. We've seen two days. It was a great game, that right? I mean, game. it was outstanding. But – it was. But I'll tell you what, I, I like the fact uh, that we've seen a lot of option activity of late and the stock's towards the lower end of the range. I think it goes higher. All right, going for it like five times on fourth down. That was interesting. I do like that move, though. All right, thank you. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.